Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. My guest today makes his second appearance on the Brown Posey Press Show. Before we say who it is, Justin Moore has witnessed a murder which drives him from his vocation and into an existence in which he tries to make himself invisible, but death, strange characters, and coincidences continue to find him. When he becomes the driver for a mysterious man named A.C., Justin finds he is trying to solve a number of them, including his own. Dennis Clawson, an award-winning author with releases that include The Sins of Rachel Sims and My Christmas Attic. He's a professor of American literature at the University of San Diego, and he is back with us on the show. Welcome, Dennis. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Dennis, from reading your other works and from our discussion of them, this is a very different work. Uh, We get to go inside the mind of Justin and from what might have seemed a rather ordered life, has become rather surreal. Tell us a little bit about where this came from, because as I say, this is a bit of a departure for you. Yes, it is, actually. Uh, the I have to go back a little bit to the first Accountant's Apprentice, and uh, that goes back about 11 years ago. And it started, I think, when I was reading about some of the problems on the streets of San Diego and Los Angeles, and I realized that the, the homeless were being subjected to some very brutal beatings. Uh, some of them were actually, uh, one of them was set on fire. Uh, a couple others were attacked with railroad spikes. And I started to think, what is going on? What is causing this? How can you know a society seem to turn itself against the most uh, vulnerable among, among us? I, I just couldn't understand it. And I decided what I would do is I would do a screenplay and try to put it together into a story. And I've done that many times before. We can talk about that later, the advantages of that. But um, I started to work with this character of uh, Justin. And uh, he's kind of a deeply troubled, possibly unreliable narrator. And uh, he kind of spends most of his time in the darkness of his studio apartment twisting and turning a Rubik's Cube and hoping when he turns the light on it will solve itself. And that became kind of the format and the point of view and a place for the reader to stand in the story. Uh, He eventually takes a job with a character who's in the same apartment, lives in the third floor, and he becomes a driver for this AC. And this guy is a very strange fellow. And uh, Justin is not too sure what he's dealing with. Is this guy an international art thief? Is he a a forerunner for a drug cartel? Or in time, does he, he starts to think that perhaps he has some kind of celestial connection that has come to take an accounting of this whole situation that's unfolding in our major cities. Uh, I did it as a screenplay, but I didn't think I had the, the spirit of the story. I kind of it was more of a detective story, I think, in the early drafts. And I do many, many drafts. And then I heard of a place called the Evergreen Cemetery, which is in the southern, southeastern uh, edge of San Diego. And it's a place where it's a pauper cemetery, basically, where a lot of homeless are buried. 
and I decided I was going to go out there and kind of see what it looked like. So I drove out there, and it's in the Mount Hope Cemetery. Well, the Mount Hope Cemetery on one side is a beautiful cemetery, beautiful stones, people gathered around, graves, uh, balloons on gravestones. The other side, there are some cypress trees that are kind of around the outer edge of the cemetery. The branches tied tight to the tree, trees. And the cemetery itself is just a weed field. Mm-hmm. And it's a weed field that goes on for several acres. And I knew from what I had read that there were 4,000 people buried there. And so I walked out into the middle of that field and I looked around and I realized on all sides of me there were people whose lives went nowhere. And is this and like. ended up. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but is this like a potter's no. field? There's no markings? It point? is a potter's field. It's a potter's field. That's, yeah, that's what it is. Okay. And I thought to myself, what went wrong here? You know, I had philosophical questions, I had theological questions, I had all those things. And I suddenly felt the spirit of the story. And Mm -hmm. that's the important thing for me when I'm writing a book. I have to feel the spirit of the story. And what went, I think, from a detective mystery story uh, became something else, something that kind of analyzed through the point of view of this Justin, who's a fairly well-educated man. What causes this kind of thing in our society? Why? What brings out this anger against uh, the homeless? Uh, what kind of universal overview of things creates people who end up like this? And mm-hmm. I had the story inside of me. I still had to work it out, of course, but I, I felt the spirit, and I think I was ready to go with it. Well, the thing with spirituality, that was pretty natural for Justin, considering his background was that character, I, I ask this about a lot of characters, did Justin just show up in in your mind, formed? Did he come about as you were considering these things, maybe walking through that field, that sort of thing? Uh, a main character is always so hard-hitting and compelling, even if they're like a really good person. And I get the feeling Justin is a genuinely decent guy, but he just does... He's so conflicted, and I was like, where did this guy come from? Well, I think you're absolutely right in your characterization of him, and I think in the early concept of it, it was very general. Uh, I wanted someone who was kind of a searcher, uh, but who was troubled, and he is troubled because, of course, he's witnessed a, a murder in a church rectory, and he feels that he should have stopped it there. And then there's also some suggestions that possibly he's involved, at least the police think he may be involved. So I suppose sometime, someplace inside of every uh, main character, and I tell my students the most important thing in writing, you have to have a place to stand in the story. I wanted somebody who was conflicted, who saw things from different sides, uh, who was an unreliable narrator in some ways, but the unreal, unreliable narrators in the fiction I've taught often the whole idea is sometimes the mentally ill or the people who are mentally troubled see things more clearly than the rest of us. And uh, I kind of wanted to play off that. So it probably came from some of my own inner turmoil about, you know, looking at life later in my years and looking at all of 
the devastation in our city streets and things like that, but it also probably came from teaching a number of uh, authors like Edgar Allan Poe and Ken Kesey and others who uh, who work with unreliable narrators uh, for the same reason. They give us kind of a more complex view of life, even though you can't quite figure out, are they completely accurate in what they are, you know, observing? Well, that is something I definitely want to get into in our next segment, and we will do that in just a moment. Dennis Clausen is my guest, author of The Accountant's Apprentice and other works. You're listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors from Pennsylvania and beyond. Check out Wiley McClellan's Unbridled Dreamer, Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. If you're into sports, Kelly Parks, Just Like Me, When the Pros Played on the Sandlot, or Legendary Sports Figures by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. If history is your interest, Mildred Schindler Jansen's True Story of Surviving Hitler, Evading Stalin, or The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania by Donald Kent. Find these and other great books at sunburypress.com. We're back with author Dennis Clausen. He has written The Accountant's Apprentice, and it is quite a departure from some of his previous works, but I do see some elements of mystery and so forth uh, from his previous uh, writings. Uh, one of the things that you said, Dennis, you talked about uh, doing this initially as a screenplay. Tell us uh, why a screenplay and uh, the differences for you. I mean, some people can can do both of them. I have not been a good screenwriter at any time in my life, so anybody that can do that, more power to them. Tell us about your ideas for it. Sure, and this goes back actually to the early 1980s. I've been around a long time as a writer, and uh, the first time I tried to write a novel, I really didn't have any idea what I was doing, and uh, it turned out very badly. I think that's probably true for many writers. Very few have what Fitzgerald had, and that is uh, a bestseller with his first novel. But right. uh, what I did, uh, I decided at that point I would study screenwriting. And I read a book by Sid Field called Screenwriting, yep. and he talked about the structure of the story. And I started to play around with it a little bit. And uh, I did a screenplay about a set in a small town, which is where I'm from, and I do a lot of small town stories. But it's about an itinerant laborer who's on a railroad track and uh, he's taking a company payroll to another small town and he disappears and the question is what happened to him and that is not solved for 33 years I turned I took the screenplay and I realized as I was writing the story using the screenplay I used the screenplay as an outline I don't really consider myself a screenwriter but as an outline I find so many advantages to do it first as a screenplay and I started writing the novel, and I felt, wow, I'm in control here. I know where I'm going with this story. <laughs> and, and I think uh, and it, that story eventually became what is now the, uh, <clears throat> the Search for Judd McCarthy, but it was first published by Bantam Books, and uh, it was a bestseller, uh, paperback original bestseller. Uh, it was compared to the best of Stephen King and Ross MacDonald, which I felt pretty good about that one. Uh, yeah. And uh, I realized that in structuring the story along the screenplay, uh, when I got to the small town where much of the action takes place, I could really spread my wings into all of the side streets and alleys and really look at the minor characters 
and build them up so that they were really came off the page. Because I knew where the main characters were going. And uh, so it really just it kind of created guardrails within which I could be more creative and more spontaneous. Uh, because in screenwriting, you base an overlay. You don't just kind of do the story on top of the screenplay. Uh, you kind of take your freedom within that structure to improvise. And I did. And then when I got to the end of it, as I tell my students, okay, now you have an ending in mind, but rethink it. Rethink it. See if there's something behind that ending that you haven't thought about. And because the reader probably already figured what the ending is, even if you think it's hidden. And then I had I realized I have two or three more endings behind that. Mm-hmm. And it worked really, really well for me. So I did it, first of all, you know, in 1982, actually, and it worked very well for me. So uh, I did that with uh, both uh, The Accountant and The Return of the Fifth Horseman. Now, I don't use a full screenplay anymore. I've kind of got a lot of that in my head I can do, but I do about the first 20 or 25 pages of the stories as a screenplay and the last 20 or 25 stories, pages, mm-hmm. I should say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, it helps me structure the story, but it does give me freedom to try to bring out some of the details and characters who might just be generalized otherwise. So I, I find it very, very useful. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you have done in your writings, and we talked about the sins of Rachel Sims. Uh, we talked about the search for Judd McCarthy, I'm pretty sure, and here in The Accountant's Apprentice. And one of the things you've done is you make the characters all have a purpose, and that is something that to me is very important. I don't care too much for just side characters unless there's somebody that's going to do a quick in and out in a story that I that I need them to do then that's fine but I always find that those side characters the people who are kind of in the background they too have a story and they always add so it's one thing I've noticed about that is everybody has a role in your work and how difficult is that sometimes basically like especially when you have you know, you have Justin and AC being like the central characters, but you're able to weave those others in. It must be difficult at times. Well, I think it would be uh, much more difficult and challenging if I hadn't uh, thought of it in screenplay form, first of all, mm-hmm. because I kind of know, again, where they are going. And uh, so when I get to my minor characters, I force myself to say, okay, now make this person more than just a generalized part of the plot. Bring them out. And that was especially, I guess, easy to do when I spent some time with, because most of these are based in the background of, of the homeless situation. I went out and spent time with the homeless and got to know them mm-hmm. and uh, talked to them and realized they weren't that different than the rest of us. But they were very idiosyncratic and very creative in what they had to do to improvise to stay alive mm-hmm. and to put a shelter over their head with canvas or whatever they could find so these people stand out when you are among them that wasn't that difficult to do um and i enjoyed doing it i enjoyed doing it because i wanted ultimately hopefully without preaching to to have the readers see that these are people they are individuals they're individuals just like the rest of us and we need to look at them in that context so uh, I'm, I'm pleased 
that you 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 sense that with them because I wanted to bring that out. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've led that into uh, the latest release, which I guess is the sequel, "The Return of the Fifth Horseman." Uh, tell us a little bit as this has just come out. Justin is still searching and there seems to be a missing person in the midst of all this. Uh, what is, where, what is Justin's journey like right now without giving it all away? Where does he go? Where is he going from here? Uh, basically there are probably three threads in this story. And, uh, we learn at the end of the accountant's apprentice that he has been working in a, a homeless shelter. And, uh, at the beginning of this, of the, 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 the fifth horseman, uh, Things have been, for a couple of years, fairly normal. Uh, he has kind of taken control uh, as a director of the shelter when the old director passed away. And then a couple of things happen uh, and triggers, you know, it's probably fragile psyche. Uh, they find a body under a uh, pile of donated clothing in the parking lot. And then what happens is uh, a wheelchair shows up a couple of weeks later. And he thinks it looks very much like the wheelchair he used to push uh, AC, his old employer, around. And that kind of triggers all kinds of old memories and things. And he begins to kind of ponder all of this again and believes ultimately that uh, maybe AC is trying to communicate with him. And there's something he needs to do. And he thinks that he, that AC actually is telling him in the darkness of his office that Justin must find him. He says, I cannot find you uh, mm-hmm. because I failed the last time. And it's the obligation is for you to find me. And you must search for me among the many, not the few. And so that sets Justin off. It, whether or not this is coming from his own inner self, which is possible, he starts to search for O.C. Uh, in the many, not the few, which could be historically, it could be biblically, it could be, and most likely, could be the many being the growing, burgeoning population of homeless. So that's one thread that goes through the story. Another thread is he has a terrible dream about some fifth horseman that is uh, joining the other four on the horizon. And this fifth horseman is kind of a fire-breathing demon, and he takes it as a harbinger of end times, but he's not quite sure what the end times are, so he starts to try to figure out how many different ways is it possible that the world could come to an end, and he looks into the the story of Edgar, Edgar Cayce, the sleeping prophet, and his ideas about how the world will end, which I won't go into, but it's kind of interesting. Or Notre Dame, who felt there were three antichrists, one in the 18th century, one in the 19th century, one in the 20th century. And then, of course, he also looks at the book of Revelation. And that thread kind of goes through the story. And then he also has this young savant, Angelina, who appears at the beginning of, at the very end of the first book, The Accountant's Apprentice. And she's still in the story, and she is doing drawings of all the, the homeless who come to the shelter and stay for a few days, and she puts them on the wall. And uh, her and her mother have become permanent residents, and all of those threads kind of come together against the background of the growing homelessness crisis. 
and uh, in some respects, although I set out to, <laughs> to write a dystopian future story, the dystopia was present because of all the issues that are going on right now in our nation's cities. So it's kind of complicated as I describe it, but they do come together uh, little by little. Well, the future is definitely present in these. We're going to take another break, and then when we come back, we will talk more with Dennis Clausen about his background, some of his other writings as well. When we return, this is the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books is your home for the writings of independent authors. Loch Ness Books is our young adult imprint, including Joe Harvey's Summer Changes Everything, Deanne Baker's The Boaters Club, and Arcane Maurer's Forbidden Powers series. Find these and other books by diverse authors at sunburypress.com. We're speaking with Dennis Clausen, who is the author of The Accountant's Apprentice, Volumes 1 and 2. The second is titled The Return of the Fifth Horseman. We've heard about this and we need to step back into uh, Dennis's uh, long career as an educator and also as an author. Uh, we've talked about this before, uh, Dennis, but our backgrounds always do inform what we end up doing. And uh, you might tell us a little bit about where it began for you in terms of, you know, what did you read? Where did you grow up? That sort of thing, because you become a product of that environment, whether you like it or not. Well, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. In fact, when I teach my upper division American fiction courses, I point out to my students that most of our, many of our major writers write about experiences they had before their age of 20. And then I tell them, so if you are going to write a novel someday, you probably already have the experience. In my case, I grew up in a very small town in west central Minnesota, uh, about an hour's drive from the South Dakota border. We obviously didn't have the Internet. It hadn't even been uh, invented yet. Mm. But we didn't have television either because the signals came out of Minneapolis 150 miles away. So that played no role in my life whatsoever. We had a little radio. What we did have was a Carnegie Library, and I practically lived there because in the middle of those Minnesota winters, four or five months of you know, snow and devastation all around you, you had to do something. And we read, we became readers. And uh, the other thing is uh, when people got together, they didn't watch the Vikings football games. They told stories. And I was surrounded by the oral storytelling tradition And I went as an, at an early age. And then later in my life, uh, a uni- branch of the University of Minnesota moved right into my edge of my hometown because there was an old West Central School of Agriculture there. They just moved in. And that made college possible for me. Um, what I did, I told everybody I was going to leave home and go to college, which meant leaving my duplex where I lived and walking a block and a half and moving into an old hotel that had been built in 1888, I think it was. And so I lived in that hotel for three years, and it turned out to be a very interesting experience because the people who lived there were almost all retired. Some were widowed. Um, They had no place else to go. Mm -hmm. So they rented a room, literally, and stayed there for the rest of their lives. I was a desk clerk, seven bucks a week. And uh, I looked out over the lobby in front of me, about 10 feet away, and I sat there all day listening to those people tell their stories. And I lived through the Great Depression with these people, Mm. you know. And I thought to myself later in my life, you know, the disadvantages in life for a writer, 
sometimes are advantages. Because I think if we had had the Internet and all that kind of thing, I wouldn't have been a reader when I was that young. If I had the money to go out to Princeton and Marquette, which some of my friends did, and they came back home and we visited, I almost was embarrassed to tell them I live in a hotel room in my hometown. But uh, if I hadn't had those experiences, I don't think I would have been able to be a writer. Uh, Now, when I left my small town, I said, I'm never going back, never going to look back. And, of course, all I did was look back and eventually started going back quite a bit and driving off the interstates and onto the state highways and the county roads and through the small towns because I wanted to see what they were like. And I realized that many of them were dying. Their main streets were dying. And so the two books that you just mentioned, The Search for Judd McCarthy and The Sins of Rachel Sims, both take place in dying small towns. Um, all of that, of course, is the result of how I grew up, and I never really left a small town. I, that's still who I am, I think. I think the same way. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Vermont, and it's while the farming business, which my family is still in, is pretty much dying, we're still hanging in there, as are a couple of other families. My county doesn't have many of that left, and as rarely as I go back, I do find myself continually thinking about there. And I have occasionally written from there, but I think my experiences weren't quite so idyllic all the time. And I sometimes think about some of the stuff that I have written, and I think, oh boy, a lot of people are going to have to pass on before this gets published. (laughs) Yeah, well, I also had an experience with... uh... In my family, it certainly wasn't idyllic by any means. I won't go into that. But uh, my mother and my father were divorced when I was quite young. I didn't know my father real well. But people stopped me on the streets in that town and asked, How was, how's your dad doing? Do you see him very much? And yep. then they would uh, say, I hope he's okay. And you, you need to know he was treated very, very bad, badly in that adoptive home he was in. And I learned at the time that my father was adopted to be a, a farm worker more than a son. And uh, that set me on a... 10, 15, 20-year effort to try to interview people uh, who knew him. And I put together another book uh, called Prairie Sun, which uh, did actually win quite a few awards and stuff like that. But, yeah, no, but I I mean, either the good, the the bad, whatever, the small town is inside of me for sure. Well, and I think think our hometown always will be that no matter the size of it. Um, Now, one of the things that I must ask about is, you also occupy a pretty unique spot, and you teach American literature at San Diego, and I well remember, <coughs> excuse me, I'll cut that out. <laughs> I well remember my uh, English teachers in high school and also in college. I was very fortunate to have a couple of, you know, I had I had one really fantastic teacher who was also an author, Dr. Edward Riley, and he exposed us to some of the standards, I suppose, of American literature, even if I wasn't, we weren't particularly fans of some of it. I began to realize the places that some of these things sort of occupied. And I think the one regret I have is not taking more English classes because I was a communication student, and those would have gone hand-in-hand beautifully. And it wasn't until years later that I started to read a little more deeply into classics and read a little more deeply into 
authors that could really inform my locations uh, because some of my works are set in Japan due to my interest in history. So you find yourself reading Yasunari Kawabata. You start reading Yukio Mishima, um, you know, and um, uh, the great Murakami, among others. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's, and I think that does happen. We sort of gravitate toward that. Did you find yourself doing that? Or, or did you find, you find yourself reading more about your own, uh, that area, like area authors? Others must have really stood out for you. Well, I actually was, uh, I have taught uh, a survey course, upper division survey course in American literature, well, for frankly, for almost a half a century. Um, I, tease, I tell my students that, you know, you probably think I've been around longer than Moses, and I say, no, I haven't, but I, I didn't know a couple of those grandkids, and I think they believe me. But anyhow, during the time that I've been doing that, I have learned to almost identify the, the authors I teach, and I think they are Melville, they're Hawthorne, they're Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Frost. I mean, I call them my old friends, and I tell my students I'm going to introduce you to my old friends mm-hmm. this semester. And then I also talk about the importance of place, because, you know, well, Eudora Welty once said, and it, it was, I think, very true, the place is the story. Yeah. The place is the story. And, you know, we think about Hawthorne and uh, the Scarlet Letter, and what do we think about? Well, we think about those small Puritan communities, uh, you know, shortly after they came to the New World. We think about uh, Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn. We, what do we do? We think of the Mississippi River, don't we? Yeah. Uh, we think, which, of course, was a part of his young years. Uh, Willa Cather, one of my favorite writers, the Prairie Trilogy, because I could certainly identify with her. My Antonia has a story of a Czechoslovakian family that came to the New World and settled in Nebraska and experienced everything my great-grandfather experienced uh, in Minnesota. So we identify her with the uh, Nebraska Prairie. It's, uh, I think, place is the story. And uh, I try to tell my students, if you're ever going to write something, one of the ways to do it is explore the places you live that meant something to you because that spirit could easily come through in a way that's real, it's authentic, and it can be deeply moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, my old friends and I are probably going to part company. <laughs> they've asked me to teach for another year. Well, they've asked me to teach for two. I don't know if I'm going to do it. But uh, I, I look back at them, and uh, I feel like I knew them. And I, I feel like I knew the places that they're writing about. And I think that's what great literature does. Right. Well, we have one other here that we need to ask about. The holiday season has kind of passed us, but you wrote a book called My Christmas Attic, and I found that drove me back into my youth and what Christmas was like for me. We were, my family was not religious, but there was the elements of what the day was supposed to be about, but also... uh, we used it, I think, as a t- it was a time of gift giving and celebration and, and seeing one another again and sort of reflecting. How did we do this year? How have we done? And where do we go from here? And I, I found this such a fascinating tale because it's like it takes sort of the innocence of Gene Shepard's Christmas story and it takes, it takes even the, the, the elements of A Christmas Carol and, and puts them into a very 
very interesting mystery. Tell us a little about this story, because I think this is one that's going to remain with a lot of folks if they ever pick it up. Well, thank you for asking about this one. This one is actually kind of personal, too, in several ways. Uh, uh, my son uh, actually is dyslexic. And uh, one year when we were taking down the Christmas tree, uh, he said, I wish Christmas could be forever. And I knew what it meant. He didn't want to go back to school because it was a struggle for him in right. school. Right. And so I thought, well, I'm an, and I also have a number of students at the university who are dyslexic. And I knew from these students that what happens with dyslexic children is frequently behind the dyslexia, there is a gift. Mm -hmm. that they are gifted in some other way. So I kind of wanted to do this story in a way as a kind of a pep talk, but also to do it at a time that I remember so well, and that is to take it all the way back to the time of the Korean War. Now, Place actually did uh, influence the story, too, because there's a small town in the mountains not too far from about an hour's drive called Julian, California. It's a small community, about 4,000 people. And uh, I'd been up there many times because it kind of reminds me of my hometown. So I decided to set it there in, uh, in Julian, California. And so I wrote it. Uh, again, I did it as a screenplay and uh, kind of used that as the, uh, the way of uh, getting into the novel. And uh, I also worked a lot with the dyslexic children. I shouldn't say children. There's college students. And, uh, and they would always tell me about... Uh, how difficult it was and how their egos and their self-confidence were so compromised, you know, often by not being able to read as well as the other children. And I always told them, well, my son is he's, you know, doing the same thing and as you are. And, uh, and believe me, it can be done and you can overcome that. I tried to give him a pep talk. And then I told him eventually the story about my son. He went on uh, to become uh, employed at Netflix, which is where he's at right now. And he's the youngest associate at Netflix, oh, wow. and uh, he's doing very well. And that's true with a lot of the, the students I've had who uh, who had the same challenges. So I wanted it to be kind of a story that told them, you know, you can, through the, the character of Jake, who is a really kind and decent fellow, you know, and but he's troubled, and he, he goes into the attic and uh, tries to... Uh, retreat from all the challenges and things in his life. And eventually, of course, at the end of the story, we find that he has made an a success out of it. And uh, I've had a lot of really, really neat letters that people have written me who have the same stories in their families. So I feel, I feel really good about that story. Great. Well, as we come to the end here, um, what are we looking at uh, that is coming next for you? I'm actually working, believe it or not, I want to make the uh, Accountant series a trilogy. I've never done a trilogy. Uh, I've done a, a sequel, uh, which is, you know, the, uh, the Search for Judd McCarthy, and then I did The Sins of Rachel Sims. It's a sequel of sorts. But I want to do a trilogy, and what it has become is not so much a story about a dystopian future, but as a kind of a chronicle of our time as we are struggling, I think, as a human community to try to to figure out what all is happening to us right here and now mm -hmm. and see if we can make some, some sense out of it and maybe find some hope 
at the end of all of this thing. So my main character, Justin, and uh, Angelina uh, are moving through uh, the second book in the series, and hopefully I can continue to do right by the homeless people uh, who I have learned you know, so much about and who have inspired me and bring it to a satisfying conclusion. So we'll see. All right. Well, Dennis Clausen has been my guest today on the Brown Posey Press Show. The Accountant's Apprentice and its sequel, The Return of the Fifth Horseman, are available, as are many of the other books we talked about, My Christmas Attic, The Search for Judd McCarthy, and The Sins of Rachel Sims, among others, at sunburypress.com. Dennis, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tori. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network.